I was 15 when the first kaiju made land in San Francisco. Only six months later, the second attack hit Manila. This was not gonna stop. This was just the beginning. We needed a new weapon. To fight monsters, we created monsters of our own. The Jaeger program was born. We started winning. Jaegers stopping kaijus everywhere. We got really good at it. Winning. Then, then it all changed. Well, 2020 has been bad, but not as bad as that movie Pacific Rim, a movie that opens in 2020, which everyone liked, but was shit. It wasn't fun, it wasn't awesome, I just don't understand Not how- now. Sorry. Even though there were some crackers, there were also some real stinkers last year. In part two of our review of 2020, we talk about those. But not wanting to leave you on a downer, we also talk about some honourable mentions, and also what we learned from this chaotic year. We don't know what we're doing, we're just talking about films. You're listening to Cellcast. I'm Sam. And I'm Lawrence. Today we face the monsters that are at our door and bring the fight to them. Today we are cancelling the apocalypse! And now we go from cinema heaven to cinema hell. Cinema heaven to cinema. the Lady and Fire, just an absolute perfect film to, uh, yeah, our worst of the year. Because what? Because it, it's been a wonderful year for film, and yet also sometimes you can just be in the cinema and uh, a film can find a way to really kick you in the balls. And that's what happened to us a few times. My bottom three. I really struggled whether or not to put this in there. I know some people are going to think this is hyperbole. But it's Tenet. And I, with a heavy heart, I have to say it's Tenet. I don't know if I had more time, whether it would be lower down the list, whether I'd give it. I'd have to say, like, I'm going to see it again. I know that it's not, a, it's not a badly intended film. I'm a massive Christopher Nolan fan. That's got to give him some kind of merit when he does something like this. But I just I just have to be honest and just say that it was just a horrible experience for me to watch in the cinema. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you'll be the only one who puts it among their worst films. I mean, if you go and see a film and people really don't follow the narrative and they get lost after 20 minutes in, which a lot of people said they did, you can see a film that you don't like, but you understand the narrative and you can get through it and it's well communicated, the idea is well explored if it's a high concept film like Tenet is then I think as a director you have a responsibility to take the your audience along with you and don't expect them to go back and see it a second time or a third time or a fourth time and I think that's what Christopher Nolan does expect of you with Tenet it's not making him any less of a filmmaker no. he's still one of the most famous boldest and most brilliant most yeah most brilliant filmmakers around yeah Tenet to me just just feels like a film where he ran away with the idea without ever being told that it's perhaps one that was a bit beyond certain audiences I mean I've seen it twice I'm still trying to get my head around it I mean it is going to be watched again and again and again there are going to be people like you who went to the cinema to see it didn't understand it. We'll rewatch it maybe in three or four years' time. Still hate it, but get a bit more of it, and then maybe that will entice them to watch it a third or fourth time. I'm not trying to make make it sound like it's completely untranslatable to a mainstream audience. I do think that 
there will be people that like the time travel in it. They they like the action in it. You know, the, the visual effects are really really good. So it's not as if there's anything to take away. But yeah, I think a lot of people will empathise with you in terms of that frustration. But it's the job of the filmmaker to communicate this stuff properly. If I felt like I just hadn't got it, I could say, well, I haven't got it. But, you know, I'll go and see it again and they'll be able, you know, I'll pick it up. No, no, actually, what, what I felt coming out of it was that someone hadn't done their job properly. That, you know, there are lots of, like, good moments in there. But it's making it onto my one of the worst of the year. Because of all the bad films that I saw this year, I didn't come out of them with this kind of frustration. With this kind of level of, like, you haven't properly told me what the fuck is going on on screen i can't follow that this this is stuff this is stuff vaguely linked with something about going backwards in time and i can't get over that and i can't forgive it for that so it's going on the list and maybe in years to come like i said in the review maybe in years to come i will change my mind on this maybe i will see it in a new light and I'll be able to praise it. But right now it's going on the list. And on that list it will stay. One of my worst films of 2020. Well, that's a little teaser of what you could hear in our Tenet podcast, which we did you know, before in, in 2020. So if you want to hear a full you yeah. know, half an hour of us you know, screaming into the abyss, then, um, <laughs> then yeah, go back and revisit that it. Is, you know, screaming into the abyss is exactly the experience, I would say. That's what watching Tenet is like, screaming into the abyss. To do what I do, I need some idea of the threat we face. As I understand it, we're trying to prevent World War III. I'm not saying I'm again here. No. Something worse. I gather you have an interest in a certain Russian national. Mike, bring me in. You really want to know? He can communicate with the future. Time travel. No. Inversion. My third worst film of the year um, is The Last Thing He Wanted, which was a film that was released in Netflix at the start of, of 2020. It's about Anne Hathaway, who plays a journalist who is covering the US 84 election, only for a strange father to turn up and reveal his involvement with arms dealing in Central America. Uh, she starts to learn more about the Iran-Contra affair, a real-life political scandal involving the United States covertly sending weapons to Nicaragua and Iran with the aim of overthrowing governments of those countries. And Ben Affleck is also in it. He plays a shady United States official based in Puerto Rico and Anne starts to investigate him. Sorry if I sped through that uh, story, but the, pro- the big problem with this film, like with Tenet, is that it's so badly written and yeah. the... The idea behind it, it's kind of, yeah, it's like an espionage thriller, but it's so hard to understand by the final act what has happened. It, the film just goes over itself. It confuses you needlessly. And yeah, it's just a really, really frustrating experience. More frustrating is that the director, D. Rees, had directed 2017's Mudbounds. That oh. was Oscar nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay. Um, it's about soldiers who come back from World War II and return to their families in deeply segregated Mississippi. That had a really great cast in it. 
that was really well made. Yeah, my band was all right. I yeah. remember that. It was a bit better than all right, really. I mean, yeah, yeah it, it was kind of heralded as, yeah, what, what, there's like a really interesting film, you know, a really good period piece about what it was like for, for African-Americans coming back after they fought for their country, coming back to somewhere as racist and as degrading as, as post-war Mississippi. So it's a really, really sort of fascinating idea. But... She's then made this, uh, this which, uh, yeah, I guess you'd call it an espionage thriller. It's got investigative journalism in it. It's also about like the relationship between that strange father um, and and the daughter trying to you know get to grips with what he's done and you know the crimes that he might have committed. I mean, if they just made a film about that, then it might have been okay. But the fact that they're trying to tell a story of you know working in this the Iran Contra affair, which in itself is a pretty like complicated political issue that they yeah. have to explore and. They just give themselves too much to do, and and by the end, you you really are scratching your head trying to figure out who did what to who and who's working for the CIA, and it's just it's just a complete mess of a film. It's interesting because the way that you're pitching it sounds like there's lots of stuff in there to like, but like just none of it works. None of the journalism, none of yeah. the there's, there's nothing interesting going on. And Iran Contra, that's a kind of it. That's an interesting political scandal yeah and there's probably um, a great film out there about the yeah the Iran Contra affair but it's even got Willem Dafoe and Toby Jones in it what so look at great. see I haven't seen this this is the problem I haven't seen this so you sound like you're pitching me a really reliably good watch I know uh, yeah exactly and if somebody said to me oh there's there's a film out there with yeah Anne Hathaway Ben Affleck Willem Dafoe Toby Jones <laughs> Then, you know, I'm, I'm sold on that. I don't really care what the what it was going to be about because that's like a solid cast with loads and loads of actors that... Yeah, they can make it work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was going to say... I was going to say actors that never let you down. Mm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that is definitely not true. No. But, no. yeah, I, it's a, they're, they're, they're all good actors. Yeah, let's just, well, let's just hope it was just like a big blip and, you know, Dee Rees can, um, can come back from that and... She's made Mudbound, which is a really good film. That's always going to look good on her CV, but no one should see the last thing he wanted. It's it's terrible. Some real things have happened lately. I want to know why. The reporter with a moral compass. Always a step ahead. Everything that happens, she's sourced up and in print. These people are starting to move surplus arms to Contras. We can't just look away. Where do you find this? How did you find me? If you had to pick a reporter capable of tracking a load of munitions in South America, wouldn't you pick you? So the next film on my list, though I'm not really necessarily putting these in any particular order, I saw a lot of bad action films and crime films but I have to say that Spencer Confidential, which is an action and a crime film, sort of just managed to be an extra layer shittier than some of the other shit things I saw this year. There's just something about it. It's just... Wait, so this is your number two? Yeah. This is my number two as well. Okay, all right, okay. I think I decided, yeah. So we can kind of talk about this together. Yeah, we can. I think it's probably because it's a combination of, of the film noir and the action genres and it craps on both of them. Um, <laughs> you know, I think that's probably why it's made it. It's, it's just a kind of a nose ahead of the rest. Uh, it's just half-assed nonsense. Everyone should just be ashamed of their supreme like lack of interest. Just g- give the money to someone who 
gives a damn about making a film because obviously no one did in this I mean it's sort of it's, so it's a story about like Spencer who's an ex-con ex-cop who comes out of prison and then has he's a, and he's an innocent man and he's, he's an innocent man he has to investigate a murder and he goes and does that and it's really boring and none of the action sequences are exciting or original or original and it keeps on telegraphing things to the audience in the stupidest way possible it feels like the script was trying to be improvised at certain points to give off some kind of charisma but since there's zero charisma between anyone um, everything they say falls flat and every time they try to give something a certain, you know, uh, a certain energy, a certain sort of joie de vivre or something, it, it completely collapses in on itself. It's not just crap. It just sort of implodes. It's a film that I, I don't think made it onto the radar of a lot of people. And I don't think it should. I, I, think, I, I think it's just a massive waste of time for anyone watching it and anyone involved in it. And I have no idea... I have no idea why they couldn't squeeze at least like one drop of goodness. Like there's just there's just not one one part of this film where I like actually ever felt entertained or interested. It's almost like a feeling of that there there, there should be something that works. Here. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's like a, the whole film's like a charisma vacuum because every, <laughs> yeah, that's it, the charisma vacuum. Because every single relationship, whether it's Mark Wahlberg with Alan Arkin or or Mark Wahlberg with Winston Duke, or Mark Wahlberg with his his love interest. Um, there's just there's just nothing happening. No, it's like yeah. it, you know, it's it's like two pieces of wood talking to each other. Yeah, and obviously that's a problem with the dialogue. With you know, that's if you can't you know you can't squeeze blood out of stone really, and that's that's what they're working with. I never really felt like anybody had a passion for making this film. I mean, Mark Wahlberg wanted to make it because it's set in Boston, which is where he's from. Um, one of the scenes they filmed was where he grew up. So there's an idea about him going home and, you know, making a film in Boston. And it even has these aspirations, I think, to be a bit of a neo-noir because this idea about, you know, a dirty city with corrupt cops and Mark Wahlberg's going to go and sort them out and, you know, he's going to smash the system. And there's no appetite for that, really. I think they just want to make a bit of a dumb action film yeah. and then, yeah, try and work in these kind of, these neo-noir themes or conventions in there and... Yeah, it's just, yeah, as you say, it's just a complete waste of time. I, I don't know what kind of pisses me off the most about this film. I think maybe it's because I have kind of an affection for the action genre, the, the sort of the buddy cop genre, film noir. Um, it's taking from all of these and, and, and like ironing it completely flat and then shuffling it off the board and, and hoping that no one notices what they've done to it, that they've ruined this particular... Uh, garment of clothing. I'm going off the the edge a little bit with this ironing metaphor, but you see what I'm saying. Like, um... is it because it's as boring as doing the ironing? <laughs> yes. Picture this: dirty cops, drug cartels, some big politicians all working together. When I was a cop, I was trying to take these guys down, but they framed me. So what's the plan? We're gonna blow this wide open. You want in? No, 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 no. You don't get the cold gun. Hawk is the name of a man with a shotgun. Spencer does your taxes. That was good. I'm going to let you have your little gun. Well, that was... So, yeah, that was my number two. Um, and, yeah, the less we speak of that, the better. But my worst film of the year is is Ava. 
Now, Ava is starring Jessica Chastain. Um, she's an assassin. She returns home to Boston to visit her sick mother. Unbeknownst to her, her employers are starting to think she might be expendable. She's talking to her targets before murdering them because they're, you know, they're listening in. Uh, and not only does she then have to fight the organisation that have been using her special skill set, but she has to keep her family set too. So pretty much your cliched like assassin movie, it all becomes a bit personal, and then she has to, you know, fight the you know, fight other assassins. It's a really dumb film. It is a bit of recency bias because it was one of the last films that I watched in 2020. So it's yeah. fre- it's more fresh in my memory than, say, something like Spencer Confidential or The Last Thing He Wanted. But I just thought this was just an absolute travesty, to be honest. Like, it's so cheaply made. It looks like it lost about $20 million dollars you know, just before filming. So they were like, oh, we did have this budget. Oh, now we've got this budget, so we have to do loads and loads of shortcuts. It was incredibly controversial as well because in August 2018, Matthew Newton, who had written the script, was set to be the director of the film, but he left the project because he had a history of domestic violence. So there was a bit of controversy. And as Jessica Chastain, who has been someone who's very prominent in the Me Too movement, kind of didn't look great that she was, you know, working with someone who had that sort of past. So Tate Taylor, who had worked with Jessica Chastain on The Help, comes in to take over. And it does kind of look like a film that is directed by someone who's done it at the last minute without much preparation. All the action scenes are done... It looks like they're done in slow motion. And not in a good way. Not in, like, a stylistic <laughs> way. No. It, they're sort of done... Everything looks just really, really like, flat and, and functional. And if you're going to make an action film, if you're going to make an assassin film... It's got to be exciting. It's got to be. It's, it's just got to be like a little bit crazy. You just can't. You just like. You don't know what's going to happen next. You're like. You know. You're looking forward to the next big set piece, but you just don't get that. And it's a shame as well because the, the fairly good cast. You got like Colin Farrell and John Malkovich in there, but they just really can't bring anything to something. It's just so so tame. And I was uncomfortable within twenty minutes. I was fairly uncomfortable watching it because you just had this. I had this feeling in my soul that it just wasn't going to get better. And it just, no. And and the opposite happened. It just got worse and worse. Yeah, I actually, this would quite easily make into one of my worst films of the year. I don't think it's recency bias. This is an absolute turkey. This has been a really tough year for action films. And this is one of the examples why. It's it's a film that maybe not not like uh, other things in this list, which I think no one wanted to make I think someone wanted to make it and then there's this there is just this stink that even if you don't know what's going on behind the scenes there's a stink of like I don't think this is quite the film that everyone wanted to make something has gone really really wrong here they've got these two they've got these two storylines about what's going on uh, as an, she's what's going on with her as an assassin and she's being hunted down by by the by the CIA but then at the same time, she's also got these like family issues that she's trying to sort out and also with her own history of addiction. But these two things feel really, really like they don't they just don't mix together at all. They yeah. feel like oil and water. So I feel like I'm watching a film for a start with like two different characters that look exactly the same. Uh, it's not that she acts exactly differently. It's just that I, I just don't see how these two different worlds really like mix to make one person it's an exceptionally irritating film as well there's something like even from the beginning the way that they're trying to make something feel like cool or exciting or engaging with her 
kind of telling her target that he, she's going to kill him and that she just wants to know why he did what he did and stuff. There was just something just right from the off that I was like, this just is not working at all. This is just a very... This feels very lukewarm. This feels very uninspired. This, 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 this feels like an undeveloped idea. I mean, if anything links most of the bad films that I've seen this year, it's that feeling that something went wrong right in the planning stages that which you did which you did with this which you did with this that there's just something that feels like if you if you if you, you know proper planning prevents poor performance you know and i just feel like there's a lot of films released this year that were the result of something going really really wrong before anyone got on set uh, and I think this is like one of them. Yeah, I mean it's not much worse than Spencer Confidential, but I guess the reason what for me with Ava was there is just this sense of oh, like we let's just get this over with. Let's just make a film that we think people will like. Let's just you know let's just spoon feed them this really sort of dumb assassin film, and yeah, I hope people won't notice it. And oh, I just think you know it just takes away all like the magic of watching a film. Just no one's. No one's engaged, no one's interested, and yeah, it's, it just, it really, really stinks. I know you like Ava, but she's a liability. No, not her. She's best to breathe. I recruited her, I trained her. She's talking to the targets! Ava. I'm good, I promise you. Keep your head down, kiddo. Management will be watching on this one. You did something bad. I wouldn't have sent me if you had Cool, so what's your, your worst film of the year? I've got a bit of a caveat that I think that I've... I don't know if I've got necessarily number one because depending on how I wake up, I think different films could end up taking that number one spot. But you know what? I think that today I really feel that my worst film of the year is The Tax Collector, uh, which is a film that not many people probably have seen uh but it was uh basically something with uh, it's a it was a crime film which was directed by david ayer and stars shia labeouf and yeah, david ayer is the person that wrote training day directed uh, harsh times suicide squad bright end of watch and it is basically about uh shia labeouf and an actor called bobby soto um, who are both tax collectors, essentially, for the cartel in uh, Los Angeles. They're not literally tax collectors. They're not, no, they're not literally tax collectors. Uh, they, uh, well, they kind of are, but they're doing it for criminals. So they're the ones that turn up and take the cut from every single gang to give it to the big um, guy at the top. And then something goes wrong, the um, count is short, and suddenly uh, Bobby Soto's family are under threat and they have to try and kill their way out of problems you know the other films were half-assed and there is something uh, there's definitely an element here but i guess the reason this 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 film gets the number one spot is none of the others are quite so douchey none of the others quite seem to have the feeling of of someone that you just want to avoid at a party. Like, that's the kind of vibe. The the tax collector, I think, is made for people that I would want to avoid at a party. So, like, quite hyper-masculine, arrogant... Yeah, yeah, hyper-masculine, arrogant, 
um, lots of bravado and ego, yeah. very little substance, all about measuring their their dicks and their creatine shakes, like that kind of thing. That's that's the vibe I get from this film. Because David Ayer has used characters like that in previous films, but they often get their comeuppance in a way. Or like he shows there's a bit more of a balance, really. I mean, I haven't seen a tax collector, but I think back to Training Day or Harsh Times, and he and he uses these alpha males, but he shows their insecurity and he shows their weakness, and ultimately, a lot of those characters end up ruining their lives in some way. Yeah, no, yeah, not in this. In this, <laughs> they're just top bros, and then this, they're just top bros. Um, but no, I mean, I, I mean, apart from my own little like um, annoyance at the, that general vibe, I mean, it is just essentially David Ayer's just uh, was a very promising director. He's made some films I really uh, like, uh, and obviously he did write Training Day, even though he didn't he didn't direct yeah, that. Yeah. But it's a, a fine film. He is a he is an auteur, and he's he's a, he's an interesting uh, guy. Um, and he's made some he's made some really great films, you know, in a, you know, in his career. But he is just he's just in this horrible downward spiral. And this is just the latest chapter. In it. it kind of started with Suicide Squad, and and then went on to Bright, and then this is like a new low because it, the problem is is what he's doing is he's returning to a genre that he's supposed to have a lot of. Uh, experience with and a lot of talent with and that is uh, you know a crime film set in Los Angeles where he makes it feel very authentic because he's he's from that world but this is just basically like all the offcuts of his other films there are no new ideas here there's nothing fresh nothing interesting it is the same archetypes that you would have in any crime film set in in Los Angeles so you, so you are bored. You are really, really bored. Like the whole film, it never, it never becomes interesting. As well as having this really like kind of irritating attitude and, and stuff. And even Shia LaBeouf, who I think is a, is a really interesting actor, and he's playing quite a volatile role in this. Again, he even he can't make this interesting because again, he just comes off as actually like, oh, I think I think you're you're having more fun playing this guy. Than, than I'm having fun watching him. And that's a shame because I think if he was utilised better, it could get better. Yeah, I was going to say, that's the responsibility of David Ayer as the director. You know, if you're going to create this character, then you need to use him in the right way. Like you said, you know, that he needs to be utilised. And yeah, it just sounds, from what I've seen of the trailer and the way you describe it, just sounds, yeah, something that just doesn't quite work. There's something that's quite abhorrent about the whole thing. It's, it's, it's just an ugly slog of a film. Like, And then also there's a subplot where Bobby Sato also finds time in his, in his, in his dealings as a, as a criminal to also go and learn Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And he's sort of struggling to get good at Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And then right at the end, in the final fight, he finds a way, he sort of karate kids his way through it and then remembers how to do Brazilian jiu-jitsu and it's like there's nothing wrong with mixed martial arts but which BJJ is like quite a big part of but there is a really douchey side to 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 MMA and it kind of feels like they put this little bit in there because to, to, to try and appeal to that market there, there was something about that that really put off, but it also was just weird it was just like really out of place it's like why am I what what you know he starts you know he starts like trying to think about his wife and then starts thinking about all the skills he's learned while doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu and it's a really like 
out-of-place moment. This doesn't feel like an authentic crime film anymore. It feels like some half a fantasy, half trying to show how authentic and, and gangster you really are. But actually, like, it just all melds together in this ugly bog of a film with nothing in it to recommend that just feels like someone that wanted just to have an easy win, wanted to set up, you know, a, a really wide open goal that they could easily kick the ball into and they've ended up just creating something that's about as much fun as watching paint dry. I mean, is it your worst of the year because you had a higher expectation for David Ayer? Well, no, well, he's been on a bit of a downward spiral, but I think it does hurt more. Similarly with uh, Chrissy Nolan, it does hurt more when you know that there's someone talented that just is going in such a horrible direction. Is that what you're going to do now? You call him Chrissy Nolan? You're not going <laughs> to call him by his first name as some sort of insult? Yes, I am. Until he gets, you know, I'll, he, he can earn that back. Yeah, until he makes... I know he listens. I know he cares about what I call it. Until he makes another good film, that's what you're going to call <laughs> exactly. it. Exactly. Um, yeah, I think there is something about, like, knowing that David Ayer can do better. Um, and just there's a kind of bafflement at the direction that he's going down. Like, he just, he can't seem to get out of this spiral of making dog shit. And you don't really know why that is. But on, but it's not just that. It's honestly, the film on its own is pretty, uh, is pretty repellent. Yeah, it's for douchebags. And I don't think even douchebags would like this. Every gang in LA has to pay the taxes. What's up, Holmes? Wake up. If you stack short, go rob a bank. Rob your own mother. There's no excuses. Do not test that. Whoa, hey, whoa, whoa. You guys look like a couple of monsters. Who in the hell, man? Yeah, but I'm at peace with that. Yeah, so now what we're going to do is just do some worthy mentions. We're going to talk about films that didn't quite get into our best, but are definitely films that you know we'd recommend. Some of the films that I saw that weren't released in 2020 uh, that I thought were absolutely amazing and and was so and these were films that I saw yeah. for the first time. Yeah, the, it's it's important that as well because I think when you watch films, you're not always just watching. Uh, something new that's come out this year. You know, there's a, there, you know, there is decades and decades of films out there, and you know, you dip into them for all kinds of reasons. And uh, I think we forget sometimes that sometimes we can watch a real. When we do, when people do roundups of the year, you can end up watching for the first time a real classic that really affects you and and is one of your one of the best things you saw that year, even if it wasn't released in that year. Yeah, and the first one I'd say about that was Bridge Over the River Kwai, which was released yeah. in 1957. It's a David Lean film, so obviously David Lean, one of the most uh, historic and important filmmakers of, of all time. And yeah, it's basically about a group of prisoners of war and they I think they're from they're all, all well they're from the UK and some from America and I think they come from Australia but they're in Japan and as part of that POW camp but they are made to build a bridge by their Japanese captors and it's about yeah it's about being a prisoner of war it's almost like about British culture the idea of their own set of values or rules that they have to abide by even though they're they're being held hostage essentially but it's, a, it's an epic, you de- obviously a David Lead film, so you yeah. associate him with epics, but it was the first time I'd seen this, and it's something that you call a classic, and people of like previous generations hold up as one of the you know the best films of the, the post-war period, but yeah, it's, it's exploring the idea of war and what war does to, to change the, the soldiers with, within it, and it's 
the scope of the film is actually amazing. Obviously, no CGI, no visual effects. It's all done in an organic way. It looks absolutely amazing. And you, you, you become so engaged and connected with these characters because of the trauma they have to suffer. And you really sort of sympathise with the position that they're in. It's just one of those films that will just... It's eternal. It's it's absolutely brilliant. And it absolutely is. It's a very beautiful, wonderful script, but it is but it is brutal. It is about the insanity of war. In a, in a, in, a, in an age where you weren't really allowed to show a lot of horror, it does get across a lot of horror, even if a lot of it is um, unseen or suggested or actually just comes across in the themes. You know, World War Two is overly fetishized in our culture. I, you know, to be honest, it's a very, that's a very big topic. But it's actually really interesting that this is one of the greatest war films ever made, and it is an anti-war film to its absolute bone. It is showing how ridiculous and how destructive this whole process was, and I think that's it's really worth remembering how a lot of the these classic war films probably made a bit more closer to the time of World War Two than we than, than we are now. Had more of a memory of these these things being horrific rather than glorious. It's a it's a it's an incredible piece of work. So the other films that uh, that I really liked that I that weren't from twenty twenty but I'd really recommend it. a Dark Song, uh, which is a horror film that you showed me. Which I is absolutely from... love a Dark Song. It's we... one of my favourite horror films. It's it's from 2016, it's directed by Liam Gavin, but yeah, it's it's very low budget, but it's very atmospheric, and well, you you could probably explain the plot a little bit better. Yeah, it's about a woman that wants to communicate with her dead son um, across the you know across the uh, into the afterlife. Uh, she meets a a, a, a a practitioner of magic that can do this for her, um, but what they have to do is they have to just be in this house in the Welsh countryside and they just have to very slowly do these rituals that sh- that, that that shift their their reality from one dimension to another completely unique kind of idea for a horror film to to watch it's just it's all about the ritual it's all about watching that slow shift and the relationship between these two characters it's it, it's a really unique really interesting really effective a horror film. It is an absolute gem, and it's an absolute crime that more people have not uh, kept talking about it over the years. Yeah, it's more of a psychological horror in a way because it's about the these two people, and I think they're both both the characters within this film. Because essentially, it's like a two. It's almost like a play in a way. Like they're both just responding to each other and yeah, trying to get through this supernatural event um, and survive it with with one another. But yeah, it's really interesting their relationship and. Yeah, very, very disturbing at times. So yeah, the other film that I was going to mention is Ronin, which is from 1998. It's directed by John Frankenheimer. It's got Robert De Niro, uh, Sean Bean, Jonathan Price. Uh, it's just a really old school, post-Cold War thriller. that I really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's just a really um, interesting idea that you've got, and I've got all these ex-Secret Service operatives roaming around Europe, trying to do jobs, trying to make a living. And yeah, they've basically spent their previous life working, yeah, working for their own countries in terms of espionage but it's much more of an action film than it is a spy film and yeah the the car chase um, especially in downtown nice is one of the uh, one of the best yeah car chases in in cinema history yeah it's a really good script 
there's lots of characters trying to outdo each other in terms of wordplay, which is really, really fun to watch. I think it's probably, for me, one of the best thrillers of the 90s, actually. It's kind of got this, yeah, this, this idea of being set in this post-Cold War world just makes it more fascinating in a way. So yeah, it's got, it's got a historic edge to it. I really, really liked it, and I was ashamed that I hadn't seen it sooner. So yeah, definitely one of my one, one of the best films I saw, but which wasn't from 2020. There are a few old films that I uh, ended up seeing. I saw a, uh, well, I, I, I watched a kind of double bill of Richard Burton, uh, the old uh, Welsh Vesp. I watched uh, Beckett and The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. One, Beckett is a kind of period piece and The Spy Who Came In From The Cold is an espionage thriller by uh, John le Carré, who unfortunately passed at, at the uh, end of last year. Both were really interesting to watch kind of Richard Burton uh, strut his stuff. He's one of the, you know, the, meant to be one of the great British actors and they're both really wonderful films in their own right. But, yeah, I saw a bunch of like old films and stuff, but actually there was a, a lot of films from this year we haven't really got a chance to talk about in this podcast, but we have talked about in in earlier podcasts, and I guess I almost wanted to, to give them an award, like the Sellies, you could call them, or something like that. Um, but um, I think that the film that I had the lowest expectation for that ended up surprising me the most, which I think is always a really great thing that happens every year in a film, was Extraction, which, like, when we've had loads of really crap action films, this was an action film that was really, really good and really kind of rejuvenated myself because I love the genre and I think this was a really great, really interesting, really, like, thrilling action film. Uh, maybe it's not the the, the, the the richest, deepest experience. I think it's got its eyes set on being an action film, and that's what it is. But it was a, but, but it was a really wonderful experience to know that, like, ah, oh, the genre's not dead. It's still going to keep going. Uh, if you want a really good thrill, like, Extraction's the best place you can go this year. And we did a whole podcast on and it. And we did a whole podcast on it. Most disappointing film? Well, that's not, yeah, that's just Tenet. Uh, I really felt. Um, I think the film that made me happiest coming out of the cinema most was probably Another Round, which I did a little podcast on. I think there was just something that felt felt like a film that was engaging with a serious subject, but it's just like a bit of a crowd pleaser and a crowd pleaser in a way that I don't think a lot of films are. The other film that made me really happy actually was an old film, uh, The Seahawk, which we actually also talked about in a previous podcast, which is an old fashioned swashbuckler yeah. and just made me feel like a kid again and you know, may or may not have, have ended up afterwards me jumping all over the sofas when no one else was in the house and sort of pretending to sword fight with uh, Basil Rathbone or something. Um, the Basil Rathbone's an actor, by the way. Basil... Yeah, he's not, your, he's, he's he's not, not your imaginary friend. He's not. <laughs> <laughs> there are some films that I wish people were talking about more that people aren't as much. I think True History of the Kelly Gang was yeah they kind of came and went didn't it and that was a shame and I, and I love that that's that's one of my favorite films of the year yeah that's going to definitely be on the list that was that was a wonderful kind of experience a very rich interestingly shot uh, punky historical crime film i also think that there was there was a film called big time adolescence which i really enjoyed which is like a kind of coming of age film with uh, with pete davidson which I thought was really interesting and I think a lot of people would really connect with in a way. I mean, Pete Davidson's other big film of 
this year was The King of Saturn Island, which I think more people saw. But Big Time Adolescence, I think, was was a lot better. Like, it's a, it's a lot more interesting. And, and I think a lot of people would, would get something out of it. But it's, a li- it's, it's not as broadly available. Yeah, it was one of the final films I saw in 2020, so I saw it as well. And, yeah, I think for an independent coming-of-age film, you know, about that awkward age between sort of 16 and... And your early twenties, not quite sure what you're doing with your life. Before it was, it was it was quite sweet in a way. And yeah, I think it it, it did do something new with that that genre or that do something new with that type of film. Yeah. So yeah, I had a, like a small affection for it. Wasn't a big fan of the ending. I didn't think they knew how to finish it, but it always is quite a, quite tricky when you're making those kind of coming of age films. Yeah, I I thought Pete Davidson's best his his best role today. He's, he's he's made really good use of in this film. Sometimes you can just have a have a role that really fits with a person, and that's what this one was. And I think it's a fascinating idea of like what things do you leave behind in your teenage years? You know, a lot of questions about how you grow up and and why you should grow up and I just think that it's really worth I think a lot of people would 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 find a lot of the things that it throws up quite interesting and it's also really entertaining quite fun to watch you know the other film that I actually don't think people are talking about as much uh, it was something I was really excited to see and it didn't disappoint it was called it was a documentary called You Cannot Kill David Arquette it's a documentary about the actor David Arquette who was in Scream and his obsession with wrestling and him trying to get back into professional wrestling in his late 40s. I I do think that it was a flawed documentary. I think that like there are elements of it where it feels like there's a bit too much selective editing and you can kind of start to see the strings. But I just the subject matter just really spoke to me. I just love the idea of seeing this person do something so mad and something that was should have been really, really embarrassing and and everyone thought he was nuts for doing it. I think I have a real affection for, because I'm a bit of a geek myself, uh, for things that um, on the surface seem really, really ridiculous. But inside that world, there's something really intense and really genuine about them. And I really like things that explore that. You Cannot Kill David Arquette just had such so much energy and so much and so much momentum. It was such a fun thing to watch. This this guy that was really complicated and really insecure in himself and him dealing with his own issues as he's getting older. He's a bit of a joke. He's a bit of a joke in Hollywood. He is a bit of a joke in Hollywood and he doesn't get the roles that he was getting in the nineties and there's this idea that he's going to yeah try and reinvent himself a little bit as a wrestler and he had a brief spell in wrestling when he was at the height of his fame, which was a complete disaster. So that's kind of really interesting that idea of going back to the mistake that you made and trying to rectify it and doing it sort of on that big global scale that that is wrestling um yeah it's it's interesting but yeah for, no. like like for, for me uh, from what you mentioned at the beginning there's too much fabrication in there it's clearly a documentary that's been altered or they've changed the idea of 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 his character to you know make him more a bit sympathetic i don't, i mean i don't know exactly how much of it is true or not i don't know think we ever do truly know i i i know what you mean it i don't think loads of it's fabricated because obviously some things you can see him getting really hurt and really messed up and like that that's real I'm I'm happy to suspend my disbelief for it because I, I guess the reason I'm mentioning it is because it is out of all the films we've talked about I think it really is a film that that barely anyone's going to take any notice of because the subject matter seems so silly but I thought it was really really entertaining and kind of like heartwarming look at such like a silly story 
I I think there was I think there's some people out there that will watch it and 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 really enjoy it uh, like I did. I think to kind of wrap up, I think it's been a really great year for horror movies. You had things uh, like The Invisible Man, Same Maud, which ended up disturbing me so much that I'm not sure I can really actually even put it into my top ten. It was really, really good. It just leaves you feeling really bleak, but it's great. It's really brilliant. Possessor, um, Colour Out of Space, uh, which is also probably going to end up being one of my favourite films, another like mad film. It was, it was a great year for horror movies. It actually makes me want to actually end up watching more horror movies and I'm rubbish at horror, watching horror movies I hide behind all of them but I keep seeing trailers for uh, horror movies that look really interesting and I feel like maybe I'm going to start getting a bit of a, a taste for them, um, I'd like to give them another go Yeah, maybe we're living through a certain movement or a golden age of, of horror films and maybe filmmakers have found out ways to make horror films a bit more cheaply Mm. Uh, they've been a bit more economical with their with their budget, and they've been able to yeah create these really good genre pieces that have been able to get to a mass audience. I think it was a really terrible year for crime films in general. I mean, we did touch on a couple of them, like The Tax Collector. The Gentleman was terrible. I really hated that. That was bad. Yeah. Uh, it was a, there's Guy a Ritchie of, is worse. Guy Ritchie is worse, and I really love Guy Ritchie, but there's moments that are kind of quite gleefully bigoted, particularly a really anti-Semitic moment at the end, which I just, I don't know why include that. But then again, we did get some good crime films like Blow the Man Down, which was something on Amazon Prime, actually, which is really worth checking out. I guess to wrap it up, I kind of wanted to actually leave you on a bit of positivity. I felt that really the biggest success of this year, there were some minority filmmakers that came out and made a lot a lot of films there's some there's, it was a really good year for minority film and it's not just about like some woke agenda it really kind of proved to me that there were some really good voices out there that the you know the reason people want to have more representation in films is because we want to see different people's voices different people's ideas and creations up on screen i think there was some really good stuff up on there a qu- very quick list Queen and Slim one of my favourite films of the year uh, that was excellent uh, Mogul Mowgli uh, The 40 Year Old Version which is a, a film recently released on Netflix it was all things from from, from Bane uh, creators there's also things like The Invisible Man and Blow the Man Down tradi- you know traditional genre films or traditional stories that were from a female perspective that was interesting Saint Maud as well, you know, a really strong female cast, a female filmmaker, and Portrait of a Lady on Fire, of course, a really great LGBT film. If you're going to take one thing out of 2020, it's that, you know, the old masters can sometimes really disappoint you. This year, there are several names. Melina Matsukas, that directed Queen and Slim. Rada Black, that directed The 40-Year-Old Virgin. Uh, Sam Hargreave, that directed... Uh, Extraction, Rose Glass, that directed Saint Maud, and uh, Bridget Savage Cole and Danielle Crudy, that directed Blow the Man Down. All those people all made some really great films. Some of those people made some of my favourite films of the year, and some of those people have ended up on a lot of critics' best film of the year. You know, um, uh, you know, uh, perhaps not Extraction, but certainly Saint Maud. Queen and Slim, those things have gone up. Now, all those people, it was their first time making a feature film. They have been so, so successful in this. Now, some of these people have come from the industry. Some of them, like, uh, not so much and don't come from such a privileged position. They've all probably worked in the industry at a certain point, but this is their first uh, feature films and they've all been really successful and really 
critically acclaimed. You also have people like the Safdie brothers and Brandon Cronenberg. The Safdies directed Uncut Gems. Cronenberg directed Possessor. They're still just becoming famous, I think, as filmmakers. What, what, what I mean is, is that I think all these, all these people making all these films, what it proves to you is that there is good new stuff being made. You don't have to feel like the best days of cinema are behind you or there's nothing new, there's nothing interesting and that you're really bored with it. One of the best things about cinema, one of my absolute favourite things, is that you can never be bored because just around the corner there's always new people and new voices doing new things with cinema. And I think this year proves that more than anything. Uh, that, that's something that I really reflected on at the end of 2020 and I raised my glass to that. Yeah, that's an exceptional pool of talent that you've just said and I guess my hope for 2021 is more people can actually go to the cinema again. Yeah. Let's hope that we find ways to all be able to get back to the cinema and help out all those cinemas that have gone bust or all those chains that can't show films anymore. I hope by the middle of 2021 we've started to all go back to the cinema again and uh, yeah, get to see films on the big screen. Here, here. But one more thing, I think this is possibly going to be the last episode of Cellcast, as you know it. Keep an eye out, because uh, over the next few weeks, you might be seeing a couple of changes to the podcast. It'll still be us, but this uh, might be the, not the last time that you're listening to Cellcast, as it is right now. Thank you so much for listening to Cellcast. You can find and subscribe to us on Spotify, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud as Cellcast. And come follow us on Twitter at Cell Magazine and like us on Facebook.com forward slash Cell Magazine.